0: Hello, UMass. It is good to be here with you tonight. Remain standing for James Baldwin. Let's give James Baldwin a posthumously standing ovation. Amen. Thank you so much. Gracious spirit of the universe, gracious God, help us and hold us that we might be strong enough and able enough to do your will. Amen. It is good for old country preacher to be invited invited here to UMass. And I want to thank everybody who's had anything to do with making possible this lecture series in tribute to James Baldwin. If I could have just been invited to sit in the midst of what might be called America's greatest prophetic and penetrating writer of the 20th century, I would have just been pleased to do that. Thank you, thank you to his family. Thank you to the dean, the chair of the departments, dear sister who who, uh, introduced me kindly, members of the Poor People's Campaign here in Massachusetts, which by the end of the night, I hope is all of you all in the audience. So I want to ask you to make sure you go to either the Poor People's Campaign, a National Call for a Moral Revival website and sign up or go to Repairers of the Breach and click on... Poor People's Campaign and sign up. And I hope to convince you with some words. I hope to turn your ears into eyes tonight. And then at the end, show your video that will make you see how important it is that we recognize it is, and it has been for some time, movement time in America. Now, Where's the dean? There's the dean. There she is. I'm I'm of no um, delusions of why you really invited me here. (laughs) Probably you invited me here, similar to the reason a farmer once introduced or uh, paid for his swayback mule to be in the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) It was a poorly looking mule and he paid the entry fee for him to be in the Kentucky Derby and somebody who bred stallions and bred racehorses said, why would you have that swayback mule enter into the Kentucky Derby? And he said, he said, you know, he can't win. He said, I know that. He said, you know, by the time he gets out of the gate, the other horses will be finished the entire race. He said, I know that. He said, but he's gonna lose. He said, I know that. Well, when, why would you pay the money to put that pitiful mule in the race with all those thoroughbreds? He says, well, he's been acting kind of ornery and I thought the exposure would do him some good. So I'm glad that you all thought the exposure would do me some good to come by the University of Massachusetts. Baldwin had his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, 1953. Kind of, sort of, an autobiographical focus of a man growing up in Harlem, grappling with father issues and issues with religion. Yeah, I've been there, especially with the issues with religion. That might seem strange for me to say that, being a minister. But Baldwin said, Mountain was the book I had to write if I was ever going to write anything else. He said, I had to deal with what hurt me most. And I had to deal with above all, he said, I have to deal with, I had to deal with my father. Before we talked about the alphabets, LGBTQI, Baldwin in 54, 1954, dared to write *Giovanni's Room. Told the story of an American li- living in Paris and he had a complex description of homosexuality then. He was helping the world then recognize that we are all complex and no one label defines us and no part of us gives anybody the, the, the power or the authority to discriminate against us. He wrote just above my head in 78, to talk about interracial relationships. These were very controversial titles. There was a time in this country that it was literally outlawed for black love and white love to be loved. He wrote Nobody Knows My Name. The Amen Corner, where he looked at Pentecostal storefront religion, was a play produced at Howard University in 1955, made its way to Broadway. He also did notes of a native son and he wrote about those things. He wrote about the story of racism. He wrote books, Fire Next Time, particularly to help his white brothers and sisters, but he wrote it from the perspective so that they could see what African-Americans see when they look at a society. And even though his works in, at work in Fire Next Time was strong, Baldwin never backed up on truth. Inside of that book is also hope, his hope and belief that we could get it right. But we'd never get it right until we told the truth. The truth must precede reconciliation. There can be no reconciliation without truth, honesty, and repentance. And so tonight, for a little while, I want to wrestle with the subject, the fire, this time facing the fire this time. One thing Baldwin knew that we can never forget. And that is that the American project has had a kind of split personality, a kind of political and social schizophrenia where there has been this struggle between the great gulf of what we say we dream to be and what we actually are. You find clues to this everywhere. Anybody that has honestly looked at this American project. Even in America's great hymns. Like America, America, God shed his grace on thee. But there's another line in that hymn. America, America, God, men thine every flaw. Dr. King once critiqued this nation he loves so much. And the greatest critics have come from the greatest lovers of this nation. Dr. King once said, let us be dissatisfied until America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. It was Langston Hughes, one of Baldwin's friends that said, America, oh America has never been America to me but I swear this oath that America must be. So let us take back our mighty dream again. America, yes, there has been progress. But this has only come, progress has only happened when there were people who knew who they were and dared to challenge the schizophrenia of this nation, dared to stand up to it. That's why my friends, you all mind if I take off my coat? That's why it amazes me when I hear people saying today, people, some of them who I thought were quite astute We've never seen this before. Now, evidently they didn't graduate from the history department at US university math. And if they did, we need to take their degree back. You've never seen this before. Oh, I've never, we've never seen anything like Trump before. We've never seen it. This is the third time that a president who lost a popular vote receive the presidency through the racist electoral college. First time was 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes. And the condition was, give me the presidency and I'll turn the South back over to the slave masters and the former slaveholders. Worked out bad. Second time was George Bush, 2000. He did not win the popular vote, but because of chads and cheating and an electoral college and both times, it turned out bad in terms of policy, particularly for poor people, white, black and Latino. We haven't seen this before. 1914 long before Steve Bannon was advising the White House, long before there were those who have had overt white supremacy feelings and thoughts and policies were in this present White House. Woodrow Wilson, an educated man, a president of a college won the presidency and the first thing he did was played birth of a nation to his entire staff in the Oval Office, a movie that derided and denigrated fusion politics of black and whites in the South who actually made the nation better and glorified the Klan. We haven't seen this before. In 1919, that's when the Charlottesville statue was commissioned. The statue that they marched around, the statue that we had to battle, the statue where the young white girl was killed, Charlottesville, where people said they were marching around that statue to honor the Confederacy. No, they weren't, because 90% of those statues were not raised to honor the Confederacy. The majority of those statues were raised post-1898, between 1898 and 1922, to honor the return of white supremacy. And some say that the statue in Charlottesville was commissioned in 1919 in some ways to pay homage to Woodrow Wilson because over his time in the presidency, he had returned, he had ended desegregation of armed services, I mean, he returned uh, segregation to um, federal government and, and many other things. So 100 years before Bannon was ever in the White House, white supremacy was there. The question might really need to be asked, when hasn't white supremacy been in the White House? Now, for some of my white brothers and sisters that didn't clap at that, understand I I deliberately didn't say white people. That's different. Because tonight I'm gonna talk about how you can actually be black and be a white supremacist. Fighting the fire this time. If you understand basic history, The first thing we must come to grips with is we need a deeper analysis in this moment. And it is not enough to say it's just Trump. In fact, that's a mistake. To make Trump the cause alone is to not understand what led to Trump and his enablers and what we're seeing now. Civil rights movement, 1954 to 1968, some say, but in the middle of that movement, extremist Dixiecrats who were afraid of losing power, we have to know this history, learn how to perpetuate the culture of racism without preparing to be racist. And they learned it through what one writer called the greatest losing winner of all time, George Wallace. They learned that racism was powerful, but you had to learn how to frame it in a way that what you were saying and promoting didn't look like racism. You had to create dog whistles. And if anybody knows anything about a dog whistle, if you blow it, only the dogs howl. And so they developed the Southern strategy. And that strategy was when it was finally really put together by 1968, had a goal of lasting 50 years. And this is the 50th year. The Southern strategy was a strategy deliberately designed to play the race card in a way to drive Southern whites to vote for extremist white politicians and for Southern whites to not join with poor blacks and poor Latinos. And they were uh, uh, poor whites to join with poor blacks and poor Latinos to be a power. The goal was to keep that alliance from ever happening in the South and for it to work in the racist enclaves of the North and the Midwest. It was in a revealing interview that former GOP strategist Lee Atwater boldly described how the Southern strategy worked to undermine fusion politics. The fusion politics that was born during the first reconstruction between 1866, 67, 68 and on which had expanded the democracy. He said, On tape, Leah Water said this, knowing somebody was taping him. He said, this is what you do. If you want to tear people apart, you say stuff like force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And then you get very abstract. And you talk about cutting taxes and all these things you're talking about uh, seem like they're totally economic things. but, But the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And whites, especially poor whites, blame black and brown people for their problems. Kevin Phillips was telling Nixon, all we gotta do to win is find out who hates who and pit them against one another. A position which he later repented of, but it was too late. The target of the Southern strategy began really in earnest right after the first Colonel Report was initially the states of the, they wanted the states of the old confederacies. I was talking through a professor here. Most people don't realize that if you, if you add up the electoral college, in the 13 former Confederate states. You only need, after adding that up, 99 electoral colleges from the other 37 states to become president. You can control 33%, let me see. Yeah, you can control 33% of the House of Representatives from just 13 states. You can control 26 of the Senate states and only need 25 from the other 37 states if you can con- just control the 13 former Confederate states. And that was the goal. That was the goal. But they also found that race baiting worked other places because racism is not just a Southern phenomenon. Some of the first riots against the Brown decision happened in the North. huh? And this is the so-called kinda gentler white supremacy that brought Storm Thurmond Thurman and the Dixiecrats into the Republican Party, paving the way for the campaigns of Richard Nixon, but Ronald Reagan also used it, and the Bushes. All of them employed the same political operatives years before Trump, and the same divide and conquer tactics and the politics that undermine and deconstruct that the many of the programs and policies that were, were working to address the issues of systemic poverty and race were racialized and deconstructed, even though the people who were getting the most benefit from the program were white, particularly white Southerners. But it wasn't just Republican. Democrats are not without blame. Because in the face of this, they didn't really take on racism. Instead, Democrats came, wanted to talk about some strange neoliberalism that, some, that where you stop even saying the word poor. You, don't, you, you create a kind of attention violence against the poor. You don't talk about race, and you believe that somehow if you can just talk about the middle class, you can address the problem in America. So don't let anybody tell you that the problem is just Trump. Democrats, for instance, gave up the South, stopped organizing, stopped funding. We need to know long before Trump mastered a modern day version of the con of the Southern strategy, he had an audience that had been cultivated for more than 50 years. In fact, even before that, Dr. King, after Bloody Sunday, when, he fi- when they finally marched from Selma to Montgomery, he made a major speech. And how many of you know, you really do need to know something that Dr. King said other than I have a dream. I mean, really. <laughs> I have a dream was what we call in black preaching, the hoop. A closing when you have dealt so with hard truths and the nightmare realities, you don't leave people in the valley. He, he did, I have a dream in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. He did, I have a dream in Detroit. He did, I have a dream in Washington DC. He did, I have a dream in a lot of places. But he said some things, some of them much deeper than I have a dream, much more penetrated. At the end of that march from Selma to Montgomery, Dr. King said this about this American schizophrenia. He said, listen, toward the end of the reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That, that it was, was known as the populist movement. The leaders of this movement began awakening the poor white masses and the former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the same bourbon interests. Not only that, they began to unite Negro and white masses. I call this fusion politics because that's what they were called the fusionists. He said, they began in the South to unite Negro and white masses into a voting bloc that threatened to drive the bourbon interests from the command posts of political powers in the South. To Meet this threat in the 1800s, the southern aristocracy that could not afford to see black and white poor people working together, began immediately to engineer this development of a segregated society. Then Dr. King said, I want you to follow me through here, because this is very important to understand the roots of racism and why there's such a hard fight to keep everybody from voting. He said, through control of the mass media, they revised the doctrine of white supremacy, they saturated the thinking of poor white masses with it, thus clouding their mind to the real issue involved in the populist movement. They then directed the placement on the books of the South laws that made it a crime for Negroes and whites to come together they crippled and eventually destroyed the popular movement of the 19th century he said it may be said of slavery the slavery era that the white man took the world and gave the Negro Jesus and then it may be said of the reconstruction era that the southern aristocracy took the world and gave the poor white man Jim Crow he gave him Jim Crow and when his wrinkled stomachs cried out for the food that his empty pockets." Could not provide. He ate Jim Crow, a psychological bird that told him that no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man better than a black man. And he ate Jim Crow, and when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the buses and in the stores and on the streets and in the public buildings. And his children, too, learned to feed upon Jim Crow, the last outpost of psychological oblivion. And all of this was done and has been done down through history, whenever the Negro and white masses of the South threaten to unite and build a great society, whenever there's the possibility of building a great society where black and white people come together to address racism and poverty, there is always a well-funded effort to divide. Now, when you know that history, you can lay that history as a grid on top of the current moment and understand that when Obama, and you don't even have to agree with all of Obama's policies, I didn't, but something happened with that election. When the Obama electorate won in the South, won in Florida, won in Virginia, one in North Carolina and one denomination through South Carolina. Hmm? It scared the bejesus <laughs> out of the out of the, um, the, the, the the people who who still live in the lineage of the Southern Strategy separate people mindset. Because hit that electorate exposed the possibility of breaking through in those 13 southern states. It exposed the possibility of fusion alliances. Black, white, brown, Asian, First Nation, poor, working poor, working together. It exposed the possibility that there were changing demographics in the nation and changing metrics. And that is why before the man was inaugurated, Newt Gingrich called a meeting said, we got to fight anything he does. And it wasn't just him, the Democrats blocked some of Obama's jobs program, trying to be Republican light. But that election set up something. And what we are seeing now is a reaction, a fear of the possibility of rooms that look like this. Being at the ballot box and changing the balance of power. So here's part, another part of the analysis. Since the publication of Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury and now Bob Woodward's Fear, Fear, pundits and politicians have again questioned President Trump's mental stability provoking the Twitter-in-chief to retort that he is a stable genius. (laughs) Now, I leave mental health diagnosis to healthcare professionals, but we would do well to heed King's prophetic diagnosis of our shared moral malady and recognize that there is a moral, socio-political sickness that has not been yet fully cleansed from the veins of this democracy. And it still produces, it still produces this reactionary extremism in state houses, in the US Congress, and in the present administration. And this sickness is bigger than one man. In fact, one of a great reporter, and maybe one of these PhD students, at UMass, ought to get together and do their, their dissertation on this. What happened between the tweets? And for the older folk in here, you know, we used to sing a movement, a, a song between the... Oh, shh, shush, shush, don't tell everybody. <laughs> what was that, MFU, what was that group? Who? Oh, okay, Ashley, brother, somebody. But anyway, you should do a dissertation. On what happened between the, the tweets? Because that's the real issue, not just one man, but what the Congress and state houses were doing before he was elected and what they are using his distraction to do even right now. Neil Painter, that great Princeton scholar, has said that what we see now with Trumpism, not Trump, Trumpism, the entire cohort of extremism is symptomatic of an often reoccurring iconography in our American history. We come to our sense as a nation for a moment, move forward for a moment, and then we have a massive, mean, and regressive relapse. What we are seeing is not just the problem of a person and it will not be gone if he's out and Pence is in. I just thought I'd tell y'all that. <laughs> in fact, it might be dangerous if we do a 25th Amendment because then it would, they would act as though it's just him. Pence might be more dangerous. In some ways, Lord, I'm going to say this and somebody's going to get mad with me. But in some ways, Trump may be a strange blessing to America because he can't keep his mouth shut. And it's waking people up and forcing people to understand that you don't just need to deal with Trump. We need to deal with the Congress and state houses all over this place called America. Talk to me somebody. You see, whatever Donald Trump's mental state is, 60 million Americans were willing to entrust our government to him after they heard the extremism of his policies, the racist, mean, economically insane, constitutionally inconsistent nature of his proposal, and 97 million Americans who are registered to vote chose to stay home whatever his mental state is, in 2016, something's going on that bigger than one issue. Somebody was saying to me the other day, this is a little graphic, but you all can handle it. Most of us have grown. They said, whenever you catch a cold, you sneeze snot, but just wiping the snot ain't gonna fix the cold. You see, say deep, touch your neighbor, say deeper analysis. I oh, no, not like you would, say, touch him, say deeper analysis. They're not going to hit you, say deeper analysis. See, whatever his mental state is, and um, Nancy McLean, in her book, Democracy and Change, said you need to take one week off from Trump and focus on what's going on underneath. Whatever his mental state in 2016, our problems didn't start in 2016. In fact, in 2016, when when they were running, we went through 26 presidential debates on the Democratic side and the Republican side, primary and general election, and we didn't have one debate on racism, one hour on voter suppression, one hour on poverty, not 130 minutes. The truth is, America has almost lost, if it ever had, a slight ability to talk about racism. Nearly every politician in the United States condemned hate after the violence and anti-black, anti-Semitic, and anti-gay white nationalism in Charlottesville. And Almost everybody denounced Roseanne Barr, sounding foolish, but racism and white supremacy are not just about personal hate, it's about power. And the question is not whether politicians condemn personal individualized hate, but whether they will condemn the policies and the agenda of white supremacy. And we need to understand that even if you're black and you're elected, and white supremacists are against immigration reform, and white supremacists are against, and white nationalists are against health care for all, and white nationalists are against voters, voter uh, um, voting registration and vote access to voting for all. Even if you're black, but you vote with those like for those policies, and you vote and you stand with that kind of extremism, at best you are an enabler of white nationalism. But if you vote too much, no matter what your skin color is, you are a participant in white nationalism, even in the 21st century. Because it's about power. I said that one time and Tim Scott got mad at me, a senator. I was down in South Carolina, And somebody asked me because he was talking about not Martin Luther King. And I said, Brother Scott, you can't talk too much about Martin Luther King because you vote against the very policies Martin Luther King was standing for. He was just talking. I love, I have a dream. I said, but that's not the issue. (laughs) And I said, I said, because, see, the white nationalists and Tea Partiers have always, every ventriloquist can find a good dummy. And he said, I called him a dummy. I said, I didn't call you no dummy. I said, every ventriloquist can find a good dummy. So if you're black in color, but you're supporting shutting down the Voting Rights Act, and you're supporting stopping people from getting health care, and you're supporting cutting the budget in a way that will have detrimental impact on black people and Latino people and poor white people, regardless of what the color of your skin is, Django, I mean, regardless... Y'all saw the movie, right? (laughs) Listen, four four things real quick. Why this cannot be about one person, before 2016, 22 states since 2010 passed voter suppression and drew race-driven, unconstitutional apartheid-like congressional and state legislative districts, which means we have really in America state houses and a Congress that is unconstitutionally constituted. Because of surgical racism. And in those, the states that had the worst voter suppression laws, 57% of black voters live in those states. 234 electoral votes are in those states. 44 senators are in those states. And today, we since 2013, Three years before the, before the election that brought us Trump, since 2013, we have had less voting rights than we had August 6, 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was first passed. Because on June 25, 2013, the Supreme Court, in a 5 4 vote, gutted the Voting Rights Act, told the Congress to fix it, and Boehner, McConnell, and Ryan refused, have refused to fix the voting rights for over five years, 365 times five. Now we call Strom Thurmond a racist and he only filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 1957 for 24 hours. We talk about Trump winning Wisconsin by 20 or 30,000 votes. But Ari Berman tells us there were 250,000 votes suppressed in Wisconsin. In North Carolina, where we won after six years of fighting, four years of a movement, and over 1,200 arrests, We won in the Supreme Court where they called our laws surgical racism. And yet in our state, there were 150 fewer early voting sites in North Carolina and 898 fewer voting sites in black communities in 2016. This is not about just one man. And we miss it if we think it is so. We have to, if we're gonna deal with making America better, deal with racism. And not only that, we have to push what racism means. Racism is not just voter suppression, because the strange thing about it is, all the states that have the worst voter suppression and politicians who are white get elected through voter suppression, they then pass policies that hurt mostly white people. The states that have the worst voter suppression are also the states that have the highest child poverty, the highest women in poverty, the highest poverty rates, the lowest insurance covered rates, the lowest wages, the lowest union access, the greatest attack on the gay community, and the greatest attacks on immigrants. But those politicians get their power through voter suppression, and they fool a certain segment to say, if you vote for me, I'm gonna be against these people. But if they look deeper, they would see that they're conning them. And when they get in office, they're actually hurting them. What is racism? That's what we have to say. Racism is when you have a country of immigrants attacking immigrants. And when you have people talking about we need merit-based immigrant entry into this company, country and the very merits that you want to put on other people, their own grandmamas couldn't have passed it if when they were trying to get in this country. That's racism. Racism, is resegregating and underfunding public education. That's racism. Racism is denying healthcare and knowing that in that denial, you're gonna have millions of black and brown people to be hurt because of it. Racism is passing a budget that cuts $2 trillion from the federal budget. More money was cut in the recent budget than was, was, was given to America off the backs of slavery in pure dollars. $2 trillion. And it's gonna hurt programs that will hurt mostly poor whites in terms of raw numbers, but in terms of percentage, will hurt mostly brown and Latino people. Racism is the way in which underneath the tweets, racist judges are being appointed throughout our federal judgeship. One of them from North Carolina, President Obama nominated two black women and Grassley and that committee would not even give them a hearing. Now that they are out of the way, they called up a man by the name of Tom Farr who has fought us for 25 years on voting rights in North Carolina, who's a known, uh, has known history and ties with white supremacists and they took him through committee and passed him out. And because of the tweeter, the news media, it's dangerous to just think about one person. Racism is when you see white privilege happening right in front of your face. You all, people do understand that Trump, I think he's up to 4,000 lies now, that, and, 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 and he's not been put out. Imagine Obama telling a half of one of those lies and getting caught. White privilege is, is when, when after he's lied 4,000 times, commentators still say, well, maybe he's gonna get it right this time. We, <laughs> racism is seeing this country, seeing extremist politicians steal a Supreme Court seat. (laughs) Steal it. We already have, we already have, we we have right now four, I think four, members of the Supreme Court who will have been appointed by presidents that didn't win the popular vote. Which means they got their power to appoint from the racist electoral college system. We have now a man being put forward, Kavanaugh, and racism is number one. You know if that was a black or white democratic presidential person putting forth someone and they held thousands of papers. Can you imagine that being a black man and the senator said, we don't have 100,000 papers on him. We don't have a 10%. Can you imagine if that was a black or Latino person being, um, being before the hearing for the Supreme Court and they were accused of raping or attempting to rape a white woman? Well, even before that, It was a Democrat and a Republican that came together to push the Voting Rights Act through in 1965. Kavanaugh told a black woman, a senator, What's her name? Senator Harris, Camilla Harris. When Camilla asked him, did he believe that the Voting Rights Act section two was settled law? He in essence said, I'm not answering you. Can you, that's racism for a Supreme Court justice, a potential justice in the year 2018 to refuse to answer if section two of the Voting Rights Act is settled law. This is not about one person. And then when you put this systemic racism, the next thing we got to deal with is poverty. There are 140 million poor people in this country, not 39 million. 140 million, when you look at supplemental um, uh, incomes and what, who would be poor if they didn't get SNAP. You know, there are 140 million, 14 million children, and the poor are not some small minority. The poor are not lazy people or black people. The poor are from Massachusetts to Mississippi, from white communities to black communities, to Latino communities, to Asian communities. of Latinos are considered poor and low wealth, that's 37 million people. 60% of black people are considered poor, that's 25.9 million people. 41% of Asians are considered poor and low wealth, that's 7 million people. 67 million white people are poor and low wealth, 67 million. 45% of all the poor are women and girls, 73.5 million. Nearly 52% of our children, 38 million, are poor and low wealth. In the wealthiest country in the world, 42% of the poor are elders. Right now, even with the Affordable Care Act, 37 million people are without health care. And the fight for health care didn't start with Obama. It started with a Republican named Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. And still today, America is the only one of the 25 wealthiest countries that does not provide some form of universal health care for all of its citizens. We have a problem that's bigger than Trump. We march in the street when one African American is shot by irresponsible, ugly, mean, and racist cops. And we should. Black and white, we should. But 250,000 people die every year from policies that keep people poor. More people than die from heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. We see a presidential cabinet of billionaires and a mean-spirited Congress where the former Speaker Ryan, or Ryan once said, Feeding a hungry child a free lunch robs them of their soul. We see a denial to raise the minimum wage when there are 65 million people in this country who work every day and make less than $15 an hour. More than half of the African-American workers make less than $15 an hour. 60% of Latino workers make less than half an hour. And in the South, where the politicians claim they're for, for, they are working for God, some of them, where they pit white and blacks against each other, over 50% of all the jobs in the South, regardless of white color, are less than $15 an hour. And yet, there are 400 individuals in America who make an average of $97,000 an hour while we arrest people who simply want seven twenty-five. dollars who say, who not want 720? who live on 725. And there's not a county in this country where 725 will allow you to even rent a two-bedroom apartment. We have problems that are deeper. And we don't even hear the word poor in debates, middle class, Democrats or Republican. And when we don't deal with these issues, it sets up the possibility of a narcissist, egotist like Trump to to fool people because we spent too much time not telling the truth before he ever came on the scene. It's not just about one person. Environmental dangers hurt the poor disproportionately. All over this country, not just in Flint, poor people can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. I come from North Carolina, everybody's talking about the hurricane. There was a hurricane before the hurricane ever hit. Before the hurricanes hit, every county that was hit is a tier one or tier two county. That means a poor county. 4.7 million poor people in North Carolina. 2.2 2.2 million, 1 million, 3 of them are children. A million people in North Carolina without health insurance. And our extremists who call themselves Republican legislature denied raising Medicaid health care for 500,000 people before the storm. So what you have in North Carolina is not a storm came. You had a storm that's been a continuous everyday storm. And that storm was hit by another storm. Oil companies are drilling for natural gas on Apache lands and copper on Apache lands, and they're poisoning the aquifers, coal ash is spilling into the rivers. Federal deregulation could open up the mines in Alaska, and I've been out there with the Alaskan people, seeing the glaciers as they're melting and moving backwards. We are undermining the very planet that we, is the only one we have. And then the thing people don't want you to talk about and why we, and if you don't talk about it, you allow a Trump to run on this, this business of being strong in the military. The fact of the matter is every 54 cents of every discretionary dollar goes to the military. And so not only must we address systemic poverty, systemic racism, and ecological devastation, we must address this war economy and militarism. Only 16 cent goes to the things like healthcare, education, affordable housing, infrastructure. And the question when we talk about paying for things is not, oh, well, if you you do this, you're gonna have to take money from the military and we'll be less safe. That's a fear tactic. The military as it is, we can already blow the world up. Well, some people say 50 times, others say 100, some say 75, somebody said 200, about two twice is enough, you know, really. We've paid $4 trillion since 2001 to fight the war on terror while claiming that we lack the resources for health care. And since the 50s, America has not attacked a country that wasn't a black or brown country. And right now, the, the people are making a killing off of killing. James Baldwin would tell us the truth. I'm just trying to operate in, in some form of spiritual osmosis, he would tell us the truth. CEOs for companies that make weapons make as high as nineteen million dollars a year. An average combat soldier on the front line is paid less than thirty thousand dollars a year. There are thousands of soldiers that have to be on that don't have health care that could have received health care through medical aid expansion, and thousands that have to get food stamps. And then the last thing we have to deal with that's beyond just Trump is the heretical work of so-called white evangelicals, Christian and religious nationalism. Now, we must understand that even this problem is not new. We are seeing now, uh, what we're seeing is a well-funded revival of a specific and subversive false strand of Christianity and religiosity. One that has a historic legacy that stretches all the way back to slave master religion. As Kevin Cruz said it, the Princeton historian, he documented how this public religiosity wraps itself in the flag while doing the bidding of big business. Was a pur- is a purchased product. What you're seeing now when you see Sheriff Falwell and Jeffers and those folk, you are seeing a purchased product. Kevin Cruz teaches us that in, in, in the 1930s, the US Chamber of Commerce and Sun Oil and other companies, they hated the New Deal. They hated minimum wage. They hated social security, even back then. But they polled themselves and because they had helped run the country into a depression, they didn't have really the kind of popularity. So they polled to see who was popular among the people and they found out that the American pulpit was strong and people trusted it, but they didn't own it. The social gospelers owned it. And so they, they funded a group called Spiritual Mobilization. They paid a man out of California of all places. They paid him and he said, I can deliver you 20 to 30,000 pulpits. He said, and we can get them to preach this, a twisted form of Calvinism that says, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. If you're a good American, you're prosperous. If you're a bad American, you'll be poor. So then anybody, you can stand against policies that uplift the poor by declaring that when you do that, you're going against God because those people should suffer for them not being good Americans and good citizens. And when you help them to prosper anyhow, and they don't agree with our platform being against gay people, against homosexuals, then in fact you are, you are, you are hindering God's punishment. This wasn't, this, and this wasn't, in the 20th century, was nothing but a version of slaveholder religion. But the slave master said to the slave, you want, you want to go to heaven and be a good slave? We'll baptize you, but you can in no way use your baptism to fight for justice. But that was not the religion of the abolitionists. That was not the religion of Frederick Douglass. That was not the Christianity of those who stood up. That was not the Christianity of the social gospel movement of the late 1800s and the, 19, the early 1900s, late 1800s, late early 1900s, when they declared. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was not a question about your personal salvation. That was preachers and and moral leaders looking at children dying because of child labor, looking at sick people being forced to work without uh, vacation and and medical uh, vacation. That was people looking at people having to work hours and hours and dying on the job. And they asked the question, what would Jesus do? Since Jesus said the nation will be judged by these questions. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you give me health care? When I was an undocumented immigrant, did you let me in? What you're seeing is a paid product of false prophets and heretical religion in Jeffries and Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell. And I say this as that one of their brothers because some of us have said to them, brother, you need, y'all need to come on and have a debate with you so we can help cleanse your soul. Because see, they don't want somebody that knows the book to talk to them about the book. They don't want somebody that's a person of faith to talk to them about the faith. But some of us know the book and we know the book doesn't say anything about gay people. Lord, help me, Jesus. And the one of two places and the one or two places that they misinterpreted, not one scripture ever trumps love your neighbor as yourself. But what the Bible does talk about, what Jesus talked about was how you treat the poor and the brokenhearted and those who have been made accepted. I want to talk to them. If they want a moral debate, bring it on, baby, because we want to talk to you. The Bible says in Isaiah 10, Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. Bring it on, baby. The Bible says in Hosea 9 that nation has gone a whoring after other God, And when whoring after other God is when you oppress the poor and you oppress the stranger. That is a form of adultery against the, the very values of God too many preachers are willing to overlook the personal and moral failings of Trump in exchange for access to power. I'm going to say something strange. His personal failings are between him, his pastor, and his God. But his public failings are a matter for us to challenge. Because Jesus, the one I follow, that brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, (laughs) He was not crucified for simply being nice. He was crucified because he decided to walk among the people that Caesar wanted to keep down and keep out of power. And that's why they crucified him as a protester. They crucified him as a revolutionary. And so... This moment that we're in, my brothers and sisters, this moment that we're in, it's about a time when we've got to say, this is not just about one man. This is about the very history and the future of America. When politicians don't object to what he's saying, but just how he says it, and when many Democrats on the other hand that have imagined that Trumpism can be countered by a simple economic message that doesn't address the deep connections between racism, white supremacy and poverty. When politicians, some of them say his words about shithole nations is just tough talk. And others will declare that it is racist and vulgar but they refuse to call his policies racist and vulgar. We face a challenge that is more fundamental and more potentially transformative and regressive than either political party has fully recognized. This moment is not about whether a party is possible. This moment is about whether America is possible. My brothers and sisters, we are in the birth pains of a third reconstruction. We had one in the 1800s, and that one was killed and pushed off the boat. We had another in the 1950s, and that one was assassinated and broke apart. Right now, we are in the middle of a third reconstruction. The very future of America is on the line. And America, America needs more than a new president. We need a moral revolution and a moral revival that says we understand that some of us have been called once again to be the conscious of this nation. And we must know that in the 21st century, racism and economic fear still too often conjure a powerful magic which compels this nation to seek safety in hating the other and security in the false nativism that has failed us before and will fail us again. And we who know this, cannot shrink back. We must fight the fire this time. We must fight the fire that burns the bridges between whites and blacks and brown people who need to be allies. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're black and you're poor and can't pay your light bill, if you're brown and you're poor and can't pay your light bill, if you're white and you're poor and can't pay your light bill, we all poor in the dark and we're all black in the dark. You see what I'm saying? And that's why we need a poor peoples campaign, a national call for a moral revival all over this country. That's why in forty-one states here in Massachusetts and other there are coordinated commands. We don't need another organization. We got enough organization. We need a movement. We need a movement. Movement that will say there are five issues you got to address. Systemic poverty, systemic racism, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. We have to come together and address the entire web of money and influence that has been working to tie up the American democracy so that the the, the greedy wealthy can peel it off piece by piece and sell it to the highest bidder. And wealthy oligarchs know they cannot hold on to power in truly, a truly democratic election. That's why we're witnessing an all-out assault, foreign and domestic. We must understand what Dr. King said in 1968, the night that before he was shot. Now, people say it was a mountaintop speech. No, it wasn't. That was, again, his hoop. I've been to the mountaintop. I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. He had done that before. That night it had meaning because he had been depressed during the day and his staff was fighting him about doing the poor people's campaign. But inside of that speech, he said something else. He said, as he talked about the sickness of the country, he said, nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. James Baldwin said, we made this world we're living in and we have to make it over. So this is not the time for us to be fearful. This is not the time for us to be scared. This is not the time for us just to be mad at Trump. This is the time that we must change the public conversation. This is the time that we must go to the polls en masse, not just because of a president, but because of the very future of this country. This is the time. This is a time that we must challenge this crazy divisive language. If somebody, corporate interests, say that healthcare for everyone is socialism, we need people, we need leadership who will say, no, it's not socialism, it's a moral social contract rooted in the establishment of justice. And if caring for all people is socialism, then the Constitution that tells us to promote the, promote the common, provide for the common good and promote the general welfare is socialism. Then equal protection under the law is socialism. When Jesus said nations must take care of the poor, that's socialism. If that, if healthcare is socialism, then civil rights is socialism, then women's rights is socialism, then, then, then paying off big banks and, and getting them out of a hole that they put them in their own self is a form of socialism. No, we will not let you define what we're doing as what it is. What we're doing is establishing justice and what is right in this nation. We must be those. We must be those who challenge Democrats to do more than they would do and challenge Republicans to do less than they plan to do. We must bring, bring satagrada, truth force, to the political space. We cannot fail to be who we are. We are supposed to be the conscience of this nation. And I want you to know as I close that in this moment, those that fought before us, they can only inspire us. They can't help us. I went up to Rochester, New York. I went to the grave of Frederick Douglass. I called his name like Harriet Tubman did one time. I said, Frederick! <laughs> and I'm telling you, he didn't get up. So So-try-na. so Sojourner's not getting up. Ella's not getting up. Fannie Lou is not getting up. Dorothy Day is not getting up. Rosa's not getting up. Rabbi Heschel is not getting up. James Reeb is not getting up. Martin, Malcolm, mega they are not getting up. But we are their children. And so it's our time. We must demand an agenda that says we want nothing less than full restoration of the Voting Rights Act and automatic voter registration at 18, and early voting in every state, and election day as a holiday, and just immigration reform, and tribal recognition for First Nation, Native Americans, and Alaska. We, the people, demand an end To racist mass incarceration. We demand federal and state living wages. We demand a right for workers to form a union and join a union. We demand equal pay for equal work. We demand welfare programs for the poor and a guaranteed basic income. We demand equity and diversity in education and free tuition at public colleges and universities. We demand (laughs) Medicaid expansion a single payer universal health care for all and fair and decent housing for all. We demand a repeal of the 2017 federal tax law because we need a moral budget. We demand 100% clean renewable energy. We demand fully funded public water and sanitation infrastructure. We demand a ban on fracking and mountaintop removal and coal mining and coal ash ponds and offshore drilling. We demand a ban on pipelines and refineries. We demand that you protect our public lands and we demand an end to military aggression and warmongering and that you stop privatizing the military budget. We demand a ban on assault rifles. We demand the demilitarization of our borders and our communities. We demand it and we must have it and we don't say we must have it because Bernie said it or anybody else said it. We demand it because our deepest moral values say it and our constitution says it and we know that if this nation doesn't do it this nation's future is in trouble. And so we must have a vision, a vision that inspires people, a vision bigger than Trump, a vision for the future of humanity, and a vision for the future of this this nation. We must have it, we must fight for it, we must vote for it, we must stand up for it. Yes, these are tough times. The mean and the greedy are cocky on every side. Never before in recent history have we seen so much money pornographic sums of money being spent to go backwards. It's lewd, it's arrogant. Yes, these are troubling times, but I'm here to tell you, I see something happening. In Missouri, hundreds of young black low-wage workers and parents hooked up with 80-year-old people to stage actions in the Poor People's Campaign. In New York, community organizers in New York City met with veterans and religious leaders. In California, undocumented and indigenous folk right here in Massachusetts, poor folk and black folk and preachers are coming together. In Mississippi, white families and black families who are struggling with poverty are coming together. I've seen black women from Alabama and white women from Eastern Kentucky who are now coming together. I went I went to Eastern Kentucky. 89% of them voted for Trump, vote for Trump. but I found out they voted for Trump because everybody ignores them. I went up there, the Hatfields and the McCoys were in the same room. You know that was a miracle. I'm telling you. We must come together. And I close here. As a preacher, I don't care what you see in front of you if we come together. I know what coming together biblically can do because when Moses, that Jewish leader, came together with his rod, Pharaoh came down. The Red Sea opened up and the people were set free. When Esther and her uncle Mordecai came together, they were able to stop the plots of destruction against their people. When David and his rock and his slingshot and his faith came together, Goliath fell. And the next day, they tell me in the Boston Globe, it read, the bigger they come, the harder it fall. When Shadrach, Meshach, and as we say down home, that bad Negro got together. Way down in the fiery furnace, God cooled the furnace down and they challenged Nebuchadnezzar, who was a narcissistic leader. I know what coming together can do biblically, but I also know what coming together can do historically. Truth has really never lost. It's been beat up, it's been hurt, but it's never lost. Justice has never lost. During slavery, it looked like justice had lost But when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and some white Quakers and white evangelicals got together, they formed a fusion movement that brought about abolition and led to the end of slavery. Women didn't have the right to vote. But when Sojourner Truth and and, and Elizabeth Candy Staten and Lucretia Mott, a white Quaker, and Mother Jones, when they got together, they won the right to vote. Plessy versus Ferguson looked like it had the victory, separate but equal. But when when Thurgood Marshall got white lawyers and black lawyers and Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish lawyers to go back and grab Justice Harlan's dissent, the only white, white Supreme Court justice that dissented in 1898, when they all got together, they presented a case before an all-white Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court where one member had been an active part of the KKK. But that court voted unanimously to bring down Jim, uh, separate but equal. It looked like Jim Crow had beaten down justice and couldn't rise again. But when Rosa Parks and Martin King and Bayard Ruster and Glenn Smiley and Jonathan Daniels and Viola Woosa and, and James Reed got together, they were able to bring Jim Crow down. Apartheid looked like it had the last say, but when Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela and Bishop Tutu and Peter Story and all the people got together, they brought apartheid down. So I know biblically and I know historically that, that when we come together as a people, around the bigger moral vision not just a vision against a person but a vision for the very salvation of the nation we can change things but not only do I know it biblically not only do I know it personally historically I know it personally you know sometimes I walk with my cane you all see it and some years ago the doctor said I would never walk again they said I'd never get out of a wheelchair I was 30 years old I had always depended on my legs I was a former football player but I woke up one morning and I couldn't move I spent three months in the hospital, not knowing if I'd ever walk again. The therapists weren't sure either. I went through depression, but somehow, for over 12 years I was in a wheelchair and on a walker, but over those 12 years my mind got together, and then my doctors got together, and my nurses got together, the prayer warriors of my church got together, the family got together, my swim coach got together, my therapists got together, and bless God Almighty when they all got together, I can hop a little bit now. I can march now. I can fight now. I can go to jail now. I started to walk again. So I'm a witness that when we all get together, what a day of justice will be. When we all get together black and white and brown and yellow and Asian and young and old and gay and straight and urban and rural, when we all get together. We can turn America around. When we all get together, we can do what James Baldwin said. We made this world and we can make it again.